This week on Writers, Inc. It's kind of crazy that we're we're punishing the good guys. So I was just I was just aware of all the all the nonsense going on and all the misinformation that's that's on the internet. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Welcome to the uh, Zach Bohannon Memorial episode. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to think let people think I really died. I was going to try and pull Michael Scott, you know, like we really miss him. <laughs> like, is he I, dead? I, no, I just I, miss him. I can still hear his voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm still here. <laughs> it's like I didn't die from COVID. The podcast gave you COVID, apparently. Yeah, I tested positive for COVID about an hour after we recorded last week. So one of you guys breathed on me through the powers of the internet and so, gave me co- the COVID-19 SARS virus or whatever it's called. <laughs> Omicron. <laughs> Must be this hey. new microphone that I got. Like it's, it's super, super HD I might quality. Need one after it actually transmit week. viruses. I don't know, like, I don't know if I'm going to need one or not, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, but I'm here. I'm alive. I'm, uh. I actually tested positive again about 30 minutes ago, so that feels great. And uh, I'm somewhat feeling better, so I'll probably go to sleep right after we're done recording. But other than that, I'm here and I'm alive. So, so do you feel like you're on the, the uptick from this? I mean, you said it's been a week, so. Yeah, I thought I was. Like, yesterday was actually pretty rough, and I think a friend of mine said that it was probably because the day before I thought I was really doing better and took a two-mile walk, which was probably stupid, but... Um, I think that kind of caught up with me, but yeah, I mean, I think I'm on uptick. Like my daughter, she, she had it first. So we're pretty sure we got it from her school and then I got it. And then, uh, Catherine got it right after me. And, uh, so we've all been dealing with it. Um, and my daughter had it for, I mean, she basically was sick for like maybe a couple of days was feeling it and then has been fine, but we kept her home because, you know, we following the guidelines and stuff of course and we don't want to give it to anybody else but she went back today and um and i'm i uh, today was the first day i've written in a week pretty much like for most of the week so i'm way behind which is awesome but i was able to sit down and work i tried yesterday and i just couldn't do it i i ended up i tried to write i got like 50 words in and then i went and took a three-hour nap <laughs> i literally didn't wake up for three hours so um it, it, it's tough yeah. to work on you know when you're sick in general like are, are, are you taking anything because I've, I've noticed even taking like ibuprofen and advil and stuff like affects the you know my ability to actually yeah i've been tr- i did the first few days but i've weaned myself off last few days and been trying not to and just been like downing green juices and vi- stuff with vitamins like healthy food as much as i can like which i've been doing that the whole time too but um like that's i've been trying to do that to get energy and stuff i really think yesterday was because i just tried to bite off too much more more than i could chew the day before i think it caught up with me because i am doing better today but i definitely have the fatigue today I haven't been coughing quite as much um i told you guys the weird thing is none of us ever got a fever but it felt like i had symptoms like i should have a fever 
but never it was always like we our thermostat works too but it always was like yeah 97 degrees it was so weird what so, about the weird stuff like did you lose your your sense of smell or taste or i think i've lost black some and taste white? Yeah. yeah but it didn't come on till the last couple of days um so who knows how long that's gonna last um i'm supposed to go to a super bowl party sunday and i mean i'm like way past the point when like the cdc says you're supposed to like quit you know um isolating or whatever but i don't know what i'm gonna do yet so because i don't know like when i'm gonna be done being like i don't i might not be contagious now i don't know you just don't know with this thing do i have time to do i have time to get you a t-shirt that's a super spreader before you go to that party (laughs) sure yeah yeah (laughs) don't you own a shipping company you could probably just get right over to me yeah. I'm gonna send you a bottle of Jägermeister. My my dad swore by that stuff. Like he worked construction, you know, his whole life, and like he used to do a shoddy Jägermeister at, like first thing in the morning before he went into construction in Illinois. Um, and the guy was never sick and, until the day he stopped drinking Jägermeister. So I'm I'm pretty sure like that will kill virtually anything. So. Maybe that's what I need. Yeah, I got some whiskey. There you go. You know, maybe maybe I maybe I should try drinking some whiskey. So. That's that's old school, old west, you know, medicine. That's basically where half that that stuff came from. I also I also have some uh, special gummy bears. Maybe I should have some of those too. <laughs> oh, <boy>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's getting cut out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I got uh I finally got around to um. Uh, watching the Peter Jackson documentary on the Beatles called Get Back. Oh, my God, is it amazing. Uh, I'm not a huge Beatles fan, but I... um, Now, I I will say this. I think it's like a a seven-and-a-half or eight-hour documentary. You could probably cut about six hours of that out of the middle and and still have the the same effect. But uh, just, I mean, the the ability to sort of be a fly on the wall and and watch and listen to, to those classic masterwork songs being created in front of you uh, from the late 60s was just amazing. And I think, too, the um, I know a lot of the, the Jackson and his team used a lot of AI to restore the film, and it looks contemporary. I mean, it, I just kind of blown away by it. I know, Zach, you saw it. Um, JD, had you ever, uh, have you seen that yet? No, it's honestly, it's on my list. I've been burning through Ray Donovan on, on Showtime, which, if, if you haven't seen, is a really cool show. Um, a, a very similar type vibe as the Sopranos. Uh, it's basically a, a gangster family from Boston. They get transplanted to L.A., um, but they remain gangsters, and he basically becomes a fixer for the people out in Hollywood. If you run into some kind of problem, you call Ray Donovan, and it's just, but it's so well put together. Um, I just started, I think it was season five last night. I think there's there's six or seven, so I'm getting to the tail end of that. Um, Get Out is, is on my list. I've, I mean, I've, so many people have told me good things about that, so I'm going to watch that one for sure. Um, I'm, I'm totally, you know, like we've talked about streaming services and all that kind of stuff you know before but like i'm completely blown away by them in general like i I just read a story where netflix has 80 original movies coming out over the next year um that they put together so think about the bankroll behind that like you know paramount and these guys have got to be quaking in their boots you know because it's it's just so much easier to watch a movie honestly like i have no problem paying you know 14 15 bucks for netflix every month um to, to get access to that content um you know, and you can see other people going that way. I, I watched the trailer for uh, the new Firestarter right before we uh, jumped on the air. Um, and right at the very end, it, it says in theaters and streaming on Peacock on whatever the release date was, May something. So, you know, that that model, I, I've got a feeling, you know, it came about because of COVID, but I think it's going to be here, you know, long term. Well, and I, and I saw something, too, yesterday that made me just kind of think about this, too, because I saw this thing that was like previewing all the big movies coming out this year. And it's all like 
sequels and comic book movies. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to go to the theater to see any of that because it's not what I'm interested in, you know, but like these streaming services are actually putting out content I'm really interested in, you know, whether it's shows or movies or whatever. And uh, I don't know. I think that's that's really interesting, too, that these that Hollywood with the big movies is still seems to be sticking to these big franchises and all these comic book movies and stuff. But it's like, I don't know. <laughs> like yeah, It's it, not that interesting. It, you know what? It, I think it, what it is, it's, it's a different in philosophy, different philosophy. Like it to me, it feels like the Hollywood Hollywood is is trying to 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 go with sure bets to not take a risk, not take a chance, go with what works. And that's why you get all these reboots and sequels and franchises. Whereas the streaming services tend to be, seems like they're taking more risks. Like they're, they're producing limited series or producing recurring series. Uh, and, and not all of them are going to hit. And some of them are, you know, aren't going to make it past the pilot. But to me, it feels like the companies like Netflix and, and Hulu and HBO, they're, they're taking more chances on the creative side. And I don't know, I could be off. That just seems like it's my observation. Well, honestly, look at, you know, one of the, you know, look at Netflix five years ago and, you know, there were probably, you know, a handful of big box, box office type movies on Netflix and the rest of them were all indie produced type stuff, you know, things that would have been direct to DVD, um, you know, so they, a lot of those independent films, you know, they, they were basically taking those chances years back and they saw that people watched them, you know, like those independent movies that we probably would have never picked up in the, in a blockbuster, you know, people watched them on Netflix and drove it to their, you know, the top five, top 10 or whatever. Um, so I'm sure they haven't forgotten that. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, they, they've had to be different, you know, like they had to come up with a product that was slightly different from what was happening in the theaters. So you've got the, the big blockbusters coming out, you know, where these, the big studios feel they have to spend $200 million at this point on some giant movie. Um, but they know it's a guaranteed box office. I mean, look at Spider-Man. I mean, we keep proving the, the theory, you know, it's uh, coming up on what, $2 billion or, or uh, yeah, I think 2 billion, I think it was like 1.7 or something silly before. Um, you know, so like we're going, we're, we're people are, are paying for that, but like Netflix is trying to carve out their own niche. But at this point they've got the bankroll to be able to compete on a, a very serious level. Um, and, and that's happened in a really short amount of time. I mean, even the, the Oscars, if you look at the nominations, you know, Netflix is all over that. So are the other streaming services. Um, whereas a couple of years ago, you know, their name didn't appear there at all. That's right. Uh, they were sort of yeah. blacklisted a few years ago yeah so i mean where where is that going to be in five years you know is this paramount going to be you know bowing at the feet of netflix netflix might buy paramount or these other studios you, you never know but um it's it's a strange trend for sure um one of the things that i'm noticing and, and this is more for our, for our audience you know like i've got a lot of books that have been optioned at this point um and you know a couple years back you know as short as two or three years ago you know that was totally impossible for an indie published title um and at this point the conversations that i'm having over you know, my, my books like that's not even coming up anymore you know, and I, I mean, that, that probably has a lot to do with the fact that I'm crossing over a lot of, you know, my readers don't necessarily know, you know, who the publisher behind some of my titles might be. But, you know, it's, it's not a, a question. It's not a discussion when I'm talking to the studios and I'm talking to the people that are actually working on these things anymore. It's just it's all about the content itself. So I, I think that is actually shifting as well. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Zach, I know you were laid up and uh, didn't get much work done this week. Uh, but, J.D., what, what have you been working on this week? I'm still in the, the same same boat. I'm working on edits for the, the latest book. I'm working on a, a project with Patterson, um, working on that screenplay, um, working on something called a lookbook for another another film and TV project. 
um, you know, trying to trying to basically focus. You know, one of the things that I've, I'm having a lot of trouble with right now is, you know, back before I was published, you know, like I knew when I sat down to write, you know, at lunchtime for those 20 minutes, I knew exactly what book I was working on. I knew where that time was going and I knocked out my words as quickly as I could because I had such a limited time. Um, right now, when I sit down at my desk, I've got 10 different projects in front of me and I've got everybody calling and emailing me asking me when these different things are going to be done. And I'm trying my best to, to shut out all that noise and just focus on, you know, the current work at hand, the book that I'm writing right now. Uh, but it, it's difficult to do because, you know, you can hear the, you know, those other voices are right behind you going, yeah, but when are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? Hey, I really need you just, just for a second. Let me talk. You know, it just, it, it, it that's tough. Um, so I, I think, I think I understand why Karen Slaughter runs to a cabin in the woods to, to write her books <laughs> at this point. Yeah, we had a similar conversation in my community this morning and I, and I basically said like, it's, when you have a day job, you have a vision of what being a full-time writer is. And when you get there, it's not what you thought it was. And I'm not saying it's, it's better or worse, but like there are trade-offs and, and, you know, and, uh, and, and like you said, focus is one thing, uh, you know, for sure. And, and some of the realities around earning money as a creative, like it's, it's a hard business. Like it's, it's not easy. And, uh, and I think, you know, you, you kind of lose sight of that when you're in the day job and you think, wow, it'd be so cool if I could just be a full-time writer and that's all I would do. But like, that's not all you do. No, but I mean, I'll, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like it's the coolest career ever. Like I'm literally getting paid to make shit up. Um, you know, the corporate world was a, was a nightmare. Um, but you know, you, you have totally different headaches. You know, I've got people that work for me that depend on me to, you know, to produce, 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 you know, like those kind of things are, are constantly in your head and, you know, just working through it just like everybody else trying to figure out how to balance it. It's, it's all good problems to have, um, but they're, they're new problems to me, you know, so yeah, I'm sure other people have been there, done that, and I'm just trying to, to muddle my way through it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this week I had an opportunity to uh, really dig into Atticus. So we talked a little bit about Atticus, the, the formatting tool that's available uh, through the cloud versus Vellum, which is, uh, which is Mac only for the, for the Apple side. And it's good. Like, I, I'm pretty excited about it. I just, there's a little bit of a learning curve. There were a few little glitchy things that I had to kind of work around. Like, uh, some of my headings didn't come in as chapter titles, so I had to manually move those around. But for the most part, super smooth, seems reliable. Uh, I'm going to start um, gradually uh, reformatting my, all my back catalog into Atticus so I have everything in one place. Um, the only downside, this is not on Atticus, but I had to do uh, some new back matter material for a three-story method. Uh, and uh, I had to then go and pay $50 to Ingram Spark to change that PDF for both the hardback and the paperback. And I'm like, and that just chaps my ass every time I have to do that. Like, uh, I know it's, I know that's just how it is, but like, uh, and maybe Amazon spoiled me, but like, just uploading a new PDF and charging me $25 a pop to do that is just kind of irritating. Honestly, they're asking for trouble. I mean, there, there's other players that, that are capable of producing those books. I mean, I, I could name off, you know, probably five off the top of my head that, that are competition for Ingram that might be smaller today. But, you know, I, I get irked every time I have to pay that extra 25 bucks. You know, like somebody finds a typo, I want to fix it. I, I, I don't feel that it's necessarily worth paying $25, you know, for me to upload a, a, a you know, new file. Um, so I, I think they're going to have to revisit that at some point or it's, it's going to come back to bite them. I hope they get out ahead of it. I mean, they could get out ahead of it and, and just get rid of it before a competitor comes in and undercuts them. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if they'll do that, but yeah. Anyways, that's what I was. Are they, are they still, I know I went and visited there like two years ago or something and they were talking about how they were eventually going to do free ISBNs. Are they doing that yet? 
there's it's hard to tell like there there are all these codes floating around like if you're part of this organization you can use a code and get a free isbn or if you're part of this organization you can get a code and get the 25 dollars waived and my point is like i shouldn't need a code <laughs> i shouldn't need a discount code to upload a new pdf like that that's just that's just me i don't know maybe maybe i'm wrong there um, while we're kind of on the subject, I wanted to, I, I listened to Six Figure Author this week. I don't know if you guys listened to that one or not, but they had uh, somebody on that was discussing direct sales, um, and it was one of the most informative podcasts I've heard in a very long time. And I, I, I should have written down the name of the author that was on discussing this, and I totally spaced and forgot to do that. Uh, but if anybody's listening and you're interested at all in doing direct sales from your own website, she basically walks through you know step by step what you need to do to set it up. And it, it is a lot of work, I think, to get it in place. Um, you know, and a lot of you know, and she kept mentioning the fact that you have to retrain your audience if you're established and your audience is used to going to you know abc.com to buy your book you're gonna have to retrain them to come to your own website um, but the profit margins are substantially more and, and there are ways to, to get that done um, you know I, I actually heard you Jay on uh, Joanna's podcast and you were talking about how certain things are getting decentralized um, I, I think this is one of them you know so I, I think it is worthwhile if you know if an author has the time and you know it's 30 bucks a month to, to create a shopping cart um, through the service that she mentioned I, I think that's a worthwhile bet to, to have direct links on your site you know and, and not necessarily as the only links you can mix them right in there people can still buy from Amazon Barnes and Noble and the usual suspects but why not have a direct link to your own your own shopping cart um, and offer it that way if you can make just a little bit more and then maybe even offer the book for for less than some of these other people um, can't hurt right I, I think I think the one downside and I listened to the episode in fairness I think the one downside is I mean like and obviously if you don't have a big audience you're probably going to have trouble selling direct from your website anyway but like by not getting those sales on a website like Amazon you're not taking advantage of their discoverability so I think that that is one disadvantage, you know, that you might, cause I've thought about this, but at the same time, I'm like, well, I kind of want people to buy my books there because I want to get kicked into their algorithm and every sell for that counts. So I don't know. There's, there's definitely give or takes. And then with, uh, on top of that, with all the NFT stuff coming and all that, that I know Jay's really into, like by the time we get our website set up to sell direct like that's going to be almost made irrelevant by nfts possibly at some point not irrelevant but i mean that's obviously coming and probably the next big thing so i don't know it's interesting definitely definitely worth checking out well let's take care of some business before we get to the guest we want to give a nice shout out to our wonderful sponsors over there at kobo writing life so if you are about to publish a book and you want to make sure it goes to as many places as possible you got to choose kobo writing life you get to set your own price. Uh, they have monthly promotional opportunities and all of that without any sort of exclusivity. So if you do not yet have a Kobo Writing Life account, go to KoboWritingLife.com and set one up. And we also want to give a wonderful shout out to all of our patrons over at Patreon.com slash Writers Inc. Podcast. For just a buck or so a month, you can contribute questions to our monthly Q&A, uh, which we will answer right on the air. So, J.D., who is up this week? This week, we've got Jonathan Kellerman coming back um, for his, his second visit. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 40 novels. His latest book is called City of the Dead. It releases uh, February 8th, which I guess was a couple of days ago as we record this. Um, you know, one of those you know, guys that's been around for a while, extremely prolific, um, and you know, he just he knows his business inside and out. It's always a joy to talk to him. Here he is, Jonathan Kellerman. Yeah, probably the most important question I have to ask is: Have you acquired any new guitars since we last spoke? <laughs> no, I've 
I've held it down to the absurd level that that it is already. Um, my philosophy is nothing comes in unless something goes out, because I have a lot of stuff. <laughs> you, you reach a certain age, you have a lot of stuff, and it's almost too much stuff. But I'm too lazy to sell the stuff, so I don't like to hoard. I'm a very meticulous person. So my guitar room, which one day we should do something there, but yeah. I don't have a computer. I, I don't have a computer there. It's it's a big room. It came with the house. It's probably thirty by twenty. It's a big room, but there's 130 instruments in there. <laughs> Very well displayed, you know, really beautifully. It looks like a great museum, but uh, I don't want to look like a hoarder's palace. <laughs> I, I play music in there every day. So basically... No, <laughs> the simple answer is no. I don't. I mean, there are very few things that that would appeal to me. I'm getting offers all the time from people wanting to sell me stuff, but I've been focusing so much on classical guitar that I'm neglecting the electrics and the arch tops and most of the steel strings. I'm mostly playing classical, a little bit of oud, uh, some viola da gamba, a little cello, just torturing myself with Bach. Wow. Who didn't write for the guitar ever? Yeah, yeah right, right. That's a challenge. <laughs> it's a real challenge. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a concert pianist, and I said, you know, Bach didn't write for the guitar. He wrote some some lute stuff, and I said some of those stretches are just impossible. Because same with the piano, Bach put the notes there. He didn't give a shit how you got there. <laughs> that was your problem, not his. <laughs> exactly. He just wrote it. If you can't play it, too bad. But it's very gratifying to actually play it. I had Steve Vai over a couple of years ago. You know, Steve Vai is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so Steve doesn't play classical. and But we were talking and I said, you know, Steve, I'm reading music again. He says, when you read music, you play music. Mm. So, you know. Nice. Do you do any recording in that room? No, you know, I, I should. But I just play for myself. I'm just trying to really just be as good a guitarist as possible, kind of obsessively practicing. And then what I've started to do is make myself go back to improv because you lose, you know, some of that if you just play music by the note. So I was pleased because I was noodling around and Vice said, hey, you're pretty good. So I said, okay, Steve. I, and, I, and I've heard that from Roger McGuinn and a few other people. So I'm happy for an amateur hacker. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. But I just love a playing, basically, for its own sake. Yeah. Not, not What am I going to record? Yeah, you know, who cares? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As I said, I'm really not a self-promoter. I like to fly under the radar, which is which used to frustrate my publishers <laughs> and my agent when I had one. During the day when we did a lot of tours, I did it, but it's like some some people love attention. I... I really don't. Where do you know? think that? Where do you think that comes from? Is that is that is that how you're wired? Is that part of an upbringing? Like, no, I think it's just the way I'm wired. I mean, I'm really motivated. You know, it, it's interesting because my wife and I talk about this because during COVID, we realize we've been impacted, but far less than most people because we work at home anyway. And both of us are quite friendly people. I'm actually quite gregarious. She's a little quieter. But I, looking back, so many of the things that I enjoy, I mean, I really like people and I've never had anxiety, social anxiety. I have never experienced it. I don't know what it is experientially. I know what it's like for my patients. So I like people. And when I meet people, I'm always excited. What are they going? I mean, if I see you again, oh, I get to see him again, you know. Yeah. But most of the things that I enjoy are solitary. Yes. Which is interesting, you know, writing, 
And some people talk about writing being lonely. Oh man, I had raised four kids. It was the only time I had peace and quiet. I yes. go to my office. I built a beautiful office, which you can see here. And, and, you know, it's, although we can't see it on podcast, but, uh, but you've seen it and it's, it's just a refuge. And then I paint and I did make a living off that in college. I did oh, work as a, a part-time commercial artist and I was the cartoonist for the UCLA paper for four years. So that, that, that was my gig. And I did make money playing music in a band when I was in high school and college. But now the enjoyment is simply just doing it. And so, so many things that I tend to enjoy are solid. E even being a psychologist, you're in a room with one other person. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I hated meetings. When I left academic medicine, I said, I am never attending another meeting. <laughs> As a meeting is the IQ of its dumbest member. <laughs> and that's not from me. That's from a guy named Irving Janus, a Yale-educated social psychologist who wrote a book many years ago called Groupthink, where he actually researched it and yes. verified it. Yes. You know? Yeah. So, and then the governor of California asked me to please be on the cancer commission. So I went to a few more meetings because that was a good cause. But right. since then I have honored that promise to myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I was talking to my friend the other day and I said, uh, you know, in my twenties and thirties, I was really interested in being in a band, and and now in my fifties, yeah. I I have no desire to play music no. with anybody else. Like I yeah. still love music, but I don't want all of the attachments that come with it when you're playing with other people. Yeah, I I enjoyed it when I was younger. I enjoy playing with great musicians. My son's a great guitarist, so the, he doesn't have much time to play because he just had his fourth and fifth kid. Uh, you know, he's pretty busy, but <laughs> I, I don't mind playing with someone who's really great. But the music I'm playing now is solo classical guitar. That's what I've concentrated on. Grow the nails out. Haven't used a pick in years, <laughs> uh, you know. And so, you know, I would have to play with, I don't know, a string quartet or something. So it's all solo music. And uh, I'm with you on that. I, it's just there's a there's an expression in in Hebrew called you do something lishma for its own sake. Mm. You do it for its own sake, and it's a very pervasive concept in 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 the Talmud and in Judaism. You do something for its own sake. So that's what I've kind of embraced. Uh, Graham Greene said, "When a novelist turns sixty, there are only two reasons to write." fun or money, hopefully both. <laughs> and, and I'm 72, I'm a 73. And so feeling great. Thank God my mother just turned 102. Oh, so, wow. you know, yeah. yeah, hopefully genetics will kick in. I feel like <laughs> a young guy most of the time. So I'm just doing it for fun, really. Yeah. It's just, I love it. It's a good job. Um, and so that's it. You know? Well, and, you know, and it totally comes across. I mean, I, I'm excited yeah. to talk about City of the Dead with you. Alex is yeah. back. Uh, yeah. What a fun mystery. I mean, I want to talk yeah. about L.A. I, I got the Ohio reference you dropped in there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, Cleveland. Uh, yeah, yeah. So tell us well, two of my son, Well, two of my sons-in-law are from Cleveland, so I'm right. very familiar with it. Yeah. In yeah. fact, you live, you live in, in Beachwood? Uh, Beachwood, uh, yes. Yeah, uh -huh. one's from Beachwood, one's from uh, Pepper Bike, so, yeah. you know. So, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's – I think the key to that book is the motive. That's what shocking is, the eventual motive, which is pretty twisted. <laughs> but um, I was really pleased because I just got a review, I think it was from Library Journal. This is the 37th Alex Delaware yeah. novel. And they said, Kellerman at his best. So if you can still say that, 
in the 37th novel, great. I'm happy that people are recognizing that I don't phone it in. Right. I put as much work into every single book as 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 the ones that preceded it. Absolutely. And I, I really felt like I, I, I don't know much about L.A. I've been there a few times, but I felt mm-hmm. as though Los Angeles was a character in this, yes. in this story. Can you, can you talk about is, is that an intentional crafting? Yes. Is okay. Can you tell tell it's me? It's always more about been that. my intention, and I've and I've said it many times. LA is a character. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think I'm really lucky living here. It's helped make the series so successful. Not that you can't write a great novel anywhere. A great writer can can set a great novel anywhere. I think it's not a coincidence that some of the greatest crime novels have been set in Southern California. You have Marlowe. You have. Ross McDonald, you have Sue Grafton, you have, and you have all the lesser known people, a lot of whom like Horace McCoy, who wrote it, who wrote They Shoot Horses, and David Goodis, and Jonathan Latimer, people, people, writers people haven't heard of, but from a previous generation. I was very influenced by those writers. They were published in the 40s and 50s, and I was published uh, during the second golden age of crime fiction. And I just think LA is a great place. And I've thought about it, and what I've come up with is that. L.A., uh, you're not supposed to use this term, but I don't care. I don't care about political correctness. It's a third world nation in the sense that the disparity between the haves and the have-nots is huge mm-hmm. and growing. And the weather is is a factor because when you have good weather almost 24 hours a day, you can get into trouble almost 24 yeah. hours a day. You know, even the bad guys stay home when it's too cold to go out. <laughs> but you can always get it. And in, and in fact, violence rates are way higher in warm climates. The highest violence rates in the world are in Latin America. And I think people get hot, they get annoyed, but also there's just more time to get into trouble. But I think the big factor is that we're a company town and the company is Hollywood industry, as they call themselves rather pretentiously, as if they're turning out widgets, is <laughs> is uh, is the film industry. Now, when I, my family moved to LA in the 50s, it wasn't so. I mean, Hollywood was, was part of it, but so is aerospace, so are regular jobs. I've seen over the years, everything has shifted toward entertainment. Now, this is a very strange business. This is a business that trucks in a highly ambiguous product, a highly uncertain product, a product, it's a world in which people of not necessarily high IQ can make a lot of money, okay? Entertainment and sports are areas, not that all athletes are stupid, but it ain't nuclear physics, okay? These are areas where people can make a lot of money without the intelligence and judgment knowing how to handle it. So the excesses are crazy. And, you know, you talk, and, and I always think that Hollywood's always in a place, a place that attracts psychopaths and naives. Mm-hmm. It's like sheep meet wolf, right? Talked about this. Now, Harvey Weinstein is a psychopath who got caught, but there's tons like him. And you remember all the jokes about the casting couch. So nothing's really changed. It's just there's more social awareness. The other thing, it, I'm a big fan of Elmore Leonard. I don't know whether you ever had a chance to interview him. No, unfortunately but, but Dutch was a great guy. Mm-hmm. And and he wrote a book called Get Shorty, which was, of course, a very successful movie. But if you read the book, what really comes across, what, what Dutch Leonard was trying to say, he has this guy, Chili. Chili is a bone breaker for the mob in Florida. He beats people up for a living. He's a bad guy, okay? He's a mobster. He comes to L.A., 
to Hollywood. And he's appalled by the horrible people he meets. He's shocked. <laughs> and that was and, and since Dutch made a lot of his his money before he became a successful novelist doing film, you can understand why he did that. I just think it's an incredibly venal business and it's just a great place to write crime crime novels. You know, you, you just meet these people with no substance who are worth 200 million bucks. It's it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I don't want to spoil anything uh, in yeah. the book, but uh, Cordelia yeah. Gannett, uh, can you talk yeah. maybe a bit about building that character, social media, and how that's yeah. different from when you were started writing the series? Well, I, I was just amazed at this whole concept of of internet influencer, where anyone, if they're attractive or have some, can declare themselves an influencer. I just heard about a kid who dances on TikTok and made seventeen and a half million dollars last year. It's just, but we're living in this world where people buy art that blows up the minute you get it home. I mean, I don't know what's going on. I'm trying not to be that grumpy old guy <laughs> and sound like my mother, who's like, I don't know what's going on in this world. You know, she, she was born in 1920. It's just bizarre. And and the irony is that if you're a licensed healthcare professional, if you're a if you're a physician, if you're a psychologist, if you're a social worker, anything with a license, as it should be. You are subject to some very rigorous rules. You have to continue education. You've got ethical. I mean, that's why, that's how the sociologists, one way they define a profession. A profession generally has ethical rules and licensure, which leads you to journalists who have neither. So we'll see. But uh, are, is that a profession? Who knows? But anyway, those people. We who had licenses, and I no longer have have, have one because I haven't practiced since 1990. But anyone else can go on and essentially practice without a license with no repercussions. It's kind of crazy that we're we're punishing the good guys. So I was just I was just aware of all the all the nonsense going on and all the misinformation that's that's on the internet. Um, I, I just think about what it would be like to be a psychologist now and have to deal with so much faulty information and spend be spending so much of my time clarifying and explaining and alleviating stress and anxiety because people go nuts. Um, I mean, the internet's fantastic, but to me, it's like fire. You can cook with it or you can get burned with it, depending on your talents and your discretion. So I just felt I should deal with that. So so Cordy Gannett is, is an unfortunate young woman who goes that route and ends up in not a good place. <laughs> <laughs> How do you decide whether your next project is going to be uh, a, a strictly a Jonathan book versus a collaboration? Well, we try to do one of each every year. Mm -hmm. So I, I've been doing a Delaware a year, virtually every year since 1985. That's my basics. Since I'm collaborating with Jesse, it depends on his schedule. Now we turn out three, three of the clay books. They were great books. But it's going to be a delay because, as I mentioned, Jesse and his wife just had identical twin boys. They had three other children. They decided bravely to go for a fourth, and they got a fifth. <laughs> so I was just up there visiting, and these kids, Henry Wolf Kellerman and Abram Franz Kellerman, who already sound like professors, <laughs> are so stunningly identical that even I, who's pretty good with facial recognition, I really can't tell them apart. And they're so cute and they're, it's just, it's a fascinating experience, but you can see that with, you know, with Jesse home and his wife, Gavri is home. 
and three other kids and COVID, and, and they're always having to take the kids out of school, that the next clay book will be delayed a few months. Sure. You've got sure. about a third of it done. So it's not my decision. It's really up to the situation. But I always try to do a Delaware a year. Yeah. And in fact, I have two other Delawares finished already. I had this incredible manic burst of COVID activity. Uh, I spoke to my editor. She goes, you're the only writer who hasn't fallen apart and freaked out and gotten, wow. you know, due to COVID. I said, what's to get freaked, freaked out? It's the same job. I'm still home alone in a room. And so I finished next year's Delaware and the Delaware coming out in two years. So, and I'm 50 pages into the next one because that's what I do. <laughs> I write books. You know? Wow. So, I mean, I, I think for, for most, especially a beginning author, the, yeah. the challenge of publishing a book a year seems pretty overwhelming. And, and you tripled that output, uh, you know, well, in a very I, short it amount of time. took two years to do three. I took yeah. two years to do the three books. Yeah. I, I mean, basically, it's a book a year. At a, and, and, the, and, and the interesting thing is I wasn't writing quickly. I took a deliberately slower pace. So how how so? How, how, what's slower I just for you? didn't worry about it. I just... Mm wrote what I felt like writing, which, you know, maybe it was four, four days a week instead of five. I did the same thing that I always do. But in the past, when I was younger, I was kind of driven, get into the office, get in early, do it, get it, go over it. But it doesn't seem to change the output, which is interesting, which shows that I was wasting a lot of energy in the old days. You know? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just, what am I going to do with myself? We're we're not stuck. Faye, Faye and I are working at home. We have, thank God, a nice house with a lot of land. And, uh, you know, when it was possible, we did get to socialize with friends occasionally. We haven't been able to travel. We bought an apartment in Jerusalem. I don't know if I mentioned that to you last time, no. but we we have this beautiful apartment in Jerusalem, in a gorgeous part of the city, this, this duplex penthouse and a 100-year-old building, beautiful and it was all remodeled and it was the best construction we ever did. The people were great. And then COVID hit. We never got to use it. Oh. We never got to use it. So I've been sitting there for a year. So we finally got there last November, you know, because Israel locked down totally. It wouldn't let us in. Worse than the states. I, I think they did a very good job of handling the initial stages and have totally screwed up the rest of it. And they're finally getting smart and easing up because you can't prevent it. You have to live with it. So we got there for a month and had an amazing time. Uh, but that's the first trip we've taken other than occasionally seeing seeing Jesse and, and our daughter who lives in Texas. And even then, we haven't done much of that because of COVID. What else is there to do but write books? You know? <laughs> well, you said something really interesting I, I want to I come back to. You said uh, that hustling like you did when you were younger versus yeah. sort of taking your time and doing, when you, yeah. doing it when you felt like it. Yeah. You kind of had the same output or the same outcome. So yeah. how did you come to that conclusion? Because the books are still coming at the same pace. I, I think the difference was we had kids in the house. We had children. We had four of them. And there was an age spread between them of 14 years. So we had a child rearing period of 32 years. <laughs> Jesse was Jesse's 43 and our youngest daughter, Lizzie, is 29. And then there's two, two in their 30s. So we had three kids, seven years passed, then we had a fourth. So we've been raising children for half or almost half of our lives. And Faye was the kind of mom who she's a much better parent than I was. I think I was a good dad, but she, we, you know, she she would get up early, jog before they woke up, make them breakfast, and drive them to school. I would have hired a driver, <laughs> no question. 
No question. I'm just too lazy. But I was there for them, too. So we both expended a lot. Of, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. We had an assistant who was British prior to my current assistant who's been with us for 15, 20 years. And this assistant was British. And her prior boss had been Bruce Springsteen. And she was always dropping that in conversations. Oh, Bruce this, Bruce that. One day she turns to Faye, she goes, Faye, you're my first boss who cooks. <laughs> who cooks. So, you know, because most of the people she works for don't cook. And Faye was cooking and doing it. So she did the bulk of it, but I did a lot of it too because we were home. And I think once the kids were gone, it was this, okay, there's so much time now. And I think that's been the main factor. Wow. I, I felt I had to cram it in because kids are coming home, kids are here, and I never shut my office. I always, always wanted my children to come in and out of my office. They didn't bother me, but you're still dealing with child rearing. And if you have four four kids, you know, it's a lot of kids. And it's constant if you take it seriously. Now we have 11 grandkids, so that's kind of cool. And that's passive investment. <laughs> you know, you you have the kids, and they produce their kids, and you get to say hello, and then you leave. So. <laughs> Is is your perception? So you talked about the the rate of the output. Yeah. Did you notice any difference in the quality of what you created when you were cramming those words in versus letting them come naturally? Well, you know, it wasn't so much I was cramming or writing differently. I just felt more pressure. It was okay. more a more an experiential thing of which I felt I had to get in there to do it. Now I I don't feel that, and I get in there anyway. So it's just it's more fun. I always enjoyed it. I always enjoyed my job. I didn't find it stressful. I found writing always a great release. And it was a great escape from domestic life. And as I say, I go into my office and was, and Faye Faye said the same thing. This is our privacy. This is the only privacy we have. Uh, We, you know, we've been in the same, we work at home, both of us. So we're together almost 24 seven, like, like old, you, you hear about these people, their husband retires and women's going nuts. They said to deal with that for 30, 40 years, you know, but we go our separate ways. Then we get together. And I think it's just a matter of the perception that I have more freedom now. It's been that way since our youngest left, which was about mm, 15, 10, 10 years ago, maybe. So for the last decade or so, it's been easier. Then COVID hits but as I say, it's impacted everyone. But honestly, we're so grateful that it's impacted us less than most people. First of all, it plays to our personalities of liking to be by ourselves. And also, we have a lot of room. If I was living in a tiny apartment, I'd go nuts. I'd be claustrophobic and locked in, which is not necessary. So, you know, we try. I have some friends. I have a small group of friends that I like to see, guys I've known for 50 years. And, and I reach out, or they reach out, <clears throat> we'll have a lunch where it's safe, outdoors, everyone is vaccinated. And one of my friends says, says John, you know, you really nurture your friendships. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have to do. And so it's paid off. Uh, but it has definitely been, been limiting, as I think we've seen it all. I'm, I'm hoping this is the end of it. When I, heard, when I heard about Omicron, my first thought was, excellent, highly contagious and mild. Let it rip through let everybody get immunity because they've either had it or been vaccinated. Yes, some people will get sick. A very small few will die, usually people with pre-existing things. But overall, it doesn't seem to be much more severe than a bad cold for most people. And if this is the way it had started, nobody would have paid attention. 
So I'm hoping this is the end of it. But every time I'm optimistic, something else happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you we'll mean. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Well, I've crazy thing. Yeah. I have uh, one more question for you. And since we've yeah. talked already, I, I'm dispensing with my normal yeah. last question. But I've, I, I yeah. think I have a fun one for you. Uh, yeah. Let's pretend you have the time and space and the and the green light from whoever you need it from to write any kind of book you want. What what kind of book would you write that might surprise your readers? Those another Delaware. I mean, <laughs> I love writing them. It sounds because it's not like I'm hacking them out. Delaware, as a psychologist, is a vehicle for telling a certain type of story and the kind a telling the type of story that I like to tell. Even my other books not featuring him, I think if people read him, they deal with human behavior. They deal with, with people under stress. They deal with the past coming back to haunt the present. They deal with family psychopathology. All the things I think are relevant. And I just find him a great vehicle. So that's why, unlike other people who write series and get tired of it, I I, I look forward to each, to each Delaware. And I love Sturgis and... There's nothing. I mean, if I wanted to write another book, I would write. Nothing's constraining me. I've written nonfiction. I've written books on psychology. I wrote a book about guitars. I've done a whole bunch of nonfiction. I've done other novels without Delaware. But if I had to write one thing, it would just be Delaware. Just he, it's like having a great guitar that you get to play every day. So you know. And I probably should be talking more about the book. Let's just say it's a scary book. La City of the Dead. And reviews have been great. And I hope people who get to it actually like it because I want to keep doing this for a few more years. This guy is a character, man. I <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoy talking to Jonathan. I, I was thinking during this episode, I was like, if Jay ever gets the opportunity to go do one of these interviews in person finally, I have to think he would be on the top of your list. Yeah, pretty much so. Not even just because, like, the guitar room, the music instrument is obviously a big part of it, but you can just tell that you guys, like, could sit there and just, like, jam and talk. Yeah, for, I mean, the, for we clicked immediately on, in yeah. the first interview with his son was there, too. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's just there's there's something there, and I just uh, was just totally – I'm totally fascinated by the guy. He's, he's just a – he's a ball. Well, he he hangs with Steve Vai and jams, and you jam with Steve Vai, you know, so it's all it's such yeah, a exactly group. the same jam partner. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so many cool things coming out of him. Uh, I mean, honestly, the, it, like he had a couple one-liners. Like I, I felt like they could be coffee mugs or, or bumper stickers. Like nothing comes out comes comes in his house unless something goes out. <laughs> like I feel like hanging that over the the back door of my house. You know, like before we go shopping or whatever. Because like when my wife and I, when we downsized, you know, from that house in Florida, we bought that little duplex. We got rid of everything you know mainly because we didn't have any room for it and and now we've got this big old house and we've been gradually filling it back up again and like if we ever decided to move it would be a nightmare and you know when you've got a, a toddler you know like the toys just keep coming in you know and like I, I i thought i'd be smart and i took a bunch of my daughter's toys and i put them in bins and i hit them away in a closet and i kind of i rotate them so like once a week i just take the bin that she's got in her playroom and i swap it out with another one um but she's on to me like she's noticed <laughs> that certain toys aren't where they're supposed to be and you know like she's she figured out where i'm hiding them and yeah, and like it, it's you know she's only four and she's got a ton of stuff, <laughs> you know. So I'm trying to figure out how to manage that. Um, what was the other thing that he said? A meeting has the IQ of its dumbest member. I, <laughs> I love that. That totally brought me back to the corporate world, you know, where you're you're explaining stuff to the guy sitting at the corner of the conference table, <laughs> trying, trying to get him on board. To Zoom calls <laughs> with you guys. 
Alrighty, Mr. COVID. Uh, yeah, I definitely have brain fog this week, so I'm, I'm I'm definitely the lowest common denominator. And he touched on um, Los Angeles just being a character in his book. Yeah. Um, you know that you know the the town should I think always be like the location of your book should always be thought of as a character as you're writing the book. But L.A. in general just has a certain vibe to it. Um, you know, it just you say like Mulholland Drive, like you know just that phrase, and like everybody has a certain picture in their head. Um, you know, so like I, I can totally see that, and like you know, the Bosch series on Amazon is one of my favorites, and it, it totally captured that in, the entire you know area. Um, so yeah, I thought that was that was cool too. Yeah, that was I, that was one first thing I was going to touch on was him talking about the location being a character. I mean, that is uh, something that I think a lot of people miss out on, and I mean, I'll admit, like I'm not great about that myself. Um, not as good as I could be. I mean, I do okay with it, but. Um, I think I think that's a missed opportunity for a lot of authors is 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 having your setting be the char- be a character and like a living breathing character and especially with a place like L.A. like you mentioned and like he mentioned on the interview, um, you know it's it's a big missed opportunity if you don't treat it that way with a place like that. Yeah, one of the things that he that he also brought up is um, that he he doesn't phone it in. You know, he puts as much detail in, in the current book as he did with all the previous ones. And and you know, it's totally if you read one of his books, you can see it. And and I know authors that are on the other side of that that scale. You know, like Jonathan Kellerman, he's he's doing pretty well. Like if he wanted to, he could he could crank out a book, not bother to research it, and you know, people would still pick it up. He'd still hit the New York Times list. He'd still do well financially. Um, but you know, he it, it's not all about that for him. It's about crafting the best possible book that he can. And you know, and you see it in in his writing. And, and same thing with his wife. Same thing with his son. Like it's a it's a family ethic there. But they absolutely love you know what what they're doing. I mean, you you asked Jay in your last question, you know, if he could write anything, you know, what would he write? And and his answer was you know another Delaware book and another book in his series that he's been writing since 1985. Um, you know that that's awesome because I I know you know a number of New York Times bestsellers that you know they they kind of get caught in that rut. They're writing a particular character and they want to branch out and you know you, you can't sometimes. You know like think about like Lee Child and, and I'm not saying that he wants to write something else but you know if he went to his publisher and said i wanted to write a you know i want to write a romance novel i want to write a sci-fi novel instead of the next reacher book you know which is generating a gazillion dollars every time they put one out you know he'd get a little bit of pushback you know there's jobs on the line for that kind of decision there's movies on the line there's tv on the line like you just you just can't do that at, at certain certain points so it's very cool that he's he's you know writing what he absolutely loves and he's happy with it yeah somewhat related to that um i loved when he talked about his like the way he approaches his work now and i could tell jay you were fascinated with that like especially (laughs) the way you followed up and i could i I know you all enough to know you were probably like twitching a little bit when he was talking (laughs) talking, i don't want to i don't want to put words in your mouth but uh but i thought that like that's something that i think that doesn't get said enough is that is that sort of attitude and it's not that it's not by any means that he's lazy or whatever. It's just like, he's kind of, you know, figured out for himself that the whole hustle culture thing doesn't necessarily always produce more results. And that in fact, you know, by relaxing and just like, you know, he, he, like he said, he's still going down, sitting on the words, sitting down, do the words, but he's not putting as much pressure on himself to do that. And I mean, for me, I could, I'll tell you guys right now, like I do that a lot. I put way too much pressure on myself sometimes to sit down and do stuff and it, and, uh, and it can end up like paralyzing me. And uh, I, so like to hear him say that was really refreshing for me. Well, when he said that you're very perceptive, Zach, because when he said that my mind automatically started thinking about uh, one of the essays in Derek Sivers books, um, hell yeah or no. 
um, previous guest, and he tells a story about he used to bike on, I think it's Santa Monica. He would go on a bike ride, and um, and it was like five miles or something. I forget what the distance was. And he used to like run, he used to ride really fast and, and he would time himself. And every time he did, it was like 45 minutes. And he, he couldn't break that time like over and over again. And one day he's like, you know what? I'm just going to kind of stroll along. So he's on his bike and he's strolling and he's like waving to people and he gets back and he looks at his watch and it's like 48 minutes. So he was like the difference between like busting his ass as hard as he could versus just kind of casually having the experience was like three minutes. And, and that was what I was thinking when, when, uh, when Jonathan said that. It's like, yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes redlining doesn't get us proportionally that much further ahead. Yeah, you know, you, it had me thinking about Dean Koontz a little bit. You know, he went into his work ethic when we had him on a few weeks ago. And, you know, like I know for a fact the guy is doing 80 hours a week. Um, but again, it's it's because it's something that he, he absolutely loves. And, and that's partly why he's cranking out so many books. I, I think in, in, in Jonathan uh, Kellerman's case, you know, a lot of what's happened is he's just gotten better. You know, and it's it's not that he wasn't good before, but like he has gotten better, you know, as as the years have gone by. So like it, it doesn't take him as long to craft a thousand words as it might have before. You know, he might have put two thousand words down on paper and had to take a thousand out and rehash it a little bit to kind of get to the same place that just kind of comes straight out of his head now without you know, without that same effort. Um, you know, that being said, if he were you know, I I've said before, like writing is very much like a muscle. It's like exercising. You know, if if you do it all the time, you get better at it, you get stronger, it gets a little bit easier to do. You know, if he were to take too much time off, you know, like I think you would see a little bit of a backtrack. So I think he's found like the perfect, you know, level of, you know, how much time he's actually got to put into it in order to get that output. And I think we've all been there. You know, like I know I, I write first thing in the morning and I can force myself to keep going. I could write all day long if I wanted to, but you know, usually anything I write after 11 in the morning, I know is going to get cut the next day because it just sucks or it's wordy or it's just me trying to get a you know a higher word count, but it's not relevant. Like I, I don't need to keep it in there. Um, so I think that kind of thing happens a, a little bit too. Well, and I think that goes back to the gist of it, which is like, you know yourself, like, you know what your limits are and you realize that there's diminishing returns if you try to push past that. Yeah. You know, so I think that that, like, we have to know ourselves, you know, and also be willing to try new things. Like, you know, his, him shifting, like, that's a hard mindset to shift from when you're used to just like push, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle to then be like, I'm going to take the brakes off a little bit and not put as much pressure on myself and just see what happens. And like his willingness to do that, I'm sure it sounds like, you know, that he probably has a better quality of life now and more mental clarity because of it and is happier and is not, and he's gained just as much stuff done. So there's a lot to say for that. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's enjoying, you know, he's enjoying the writing time, but he's also enjoying music. He's enjoying art. He's enjoying exactly. this. He's enjoying that. He's, he's found a nice comfortable spot. Um, and, and I, I really envy that, um, you know, cause it's, for me, it's very difficult to do that. I, I sit down at my desk and I'm a freaking workaholic and I'm, I'm more, more similar, I guess, to Koontz than I am to, to, to him. But, you know, hearing that somebody was able to achieve that, like, it just makes me want to try and try and do that too. Yep. Totally agree. Fantastic guy. Uh, just kind of wrap it up. I, I was reminded again, just generally how important life experience is in storytelling you know, uh, Kellerman's done a lot of different things. And, uh, and when you read one of his books, especially the Delaware series, like you, you can feel it like, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, get out there, get out from behind your desk and do stuff writers. Cause that's, that's where you kind of catalog these experiences that can find, kind of find their way back into your words. So, all right, JD, who is on deck for next week? 
Next week, we've got Eliza Jane Brazier. Uh, she's a, an author, screenwriter, a journalist. Her latest book is called Good Rich People with Penguin Random House and released about a month ago or so. Um, very cool premise. It's about a destitute woman who basically tricks her way into the guest house of a wealthy family in Hollywood. And, and that person becomes the target of the family that lives there. They, they basically start playing some some mind games. Um, very, very cool book. Very cool premise. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, we've got a couple really nice interviews coming up. We've got one of the producers for Station Eleven coming on. Um, to tell us about you know the, the show itself and how that came to play, um, and Gillian Flynn, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think we'd see that one, but yeah, Gillian Flynn will be on um, in, in the coming weeks too. So yeah, we've got one hell of a lineup. Excellent. So stay tuned, everybody. To our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.